another episode of the XR Magazine podcast. I am Diana Olenik, your host, and today we're going to be speaking with James Castillo, who is the creator behind Madrid Noir, which is a virtual reality film who has won several awards. Well, James actually was born in Madrid, Spain, and he finished his studies in Singapore in 2012. James actually has a decade of experience in the animation industry, where he has worked as an illustrator, as an art director, as a designer, and most recently as a director and a screenwriter. His clients include studios such as Sony Pictures, Nickelodeon, Disney, and Netflix, where he currently works as a lead designer. In the summer of 2021, he made his directorial debut premiering his virtual reality film, Madrid Noir, launched in Oculus, at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. In addition to participating in more than a dozen international festivals, the film has won several awards, including the Best Experience Award of the Year at the VR Awards, and Madrid Noir has also won the Crystal Owl for Best Narrative Experience at Stereopsia and the Webley Awards for Best Immersive Experience in 2022. James currently lives between Madrid and London, and today we're going to be speaking about how he actually created his virtual reality film and some techniques that he's sharing with us today. Let's do it. Thank you so much, James, for being here today. We're super excited. How is everything going? Oh, it's all going great. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, it's just, uh, it's been a pretty normal day. I'm, I'm trying to get a couple of other projects off the ground. So I've been working late hours as of late, but I'm doing great. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. To get started, I think that it would be amazing to get to know a little bit about your background. Maybe what influences have you received during your career? And so we can get, you know, navigating through your la latest projects. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, very briefly, because this is the boring part. I was born in Madrid, Spain. Um, uh, I have a bit of a international background. My mom is Irish. My dad is Cuban, as we were just talking about. And I studied, um, uh, you know, I, I always drew as a, as a child, I guess, like most people would say. Um, I always sort of was interested in. I was daydreaming a lot. I wasn't a great student because I was constantly just sort of like immersed in the latest book that I had read or the latest game that I was playing. And I was really just submerging into that, into those, those worlds. I really enjoyed that. And then when it came time to figure out what to do with my life, I only, I knew I only had one, one skill that I was able to, to do. And I, and I was able to commit to, which was drawing. So, um, Animation came as a, as a sort of like a logical progression of that. Like it's an industry where this is needed. And then storytelling came later into my life. I studied in Singapore 3D and that was my, I, sorry, that didn't make any sense. I studied in Singapore in a 3D school. Um, and I was originally going to be a 3D animator. Uh, but, uh, because I had a background on drawing and, and I, I sort of, did comics when I was a teenager and did fan scenes with my friends and, and I had a bit of a sense of narrative and storytelling. Um, I, I got to direct my first 
project, which was a little school film with all my classmates. Um, and that sort of set the, the ground for this sort of little bug of a storytelling that was on me. And then, you know, I, 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 I moved into working in, in games for a while, for three years. Um, I worked in games in Singapore and Barcelona in Spain. And then I moved to London about seven years ago to pursue animation. Um, and directing wasn't right. You know, I, I didn't jump right at it. Uh, because I felt like I didn't understand the business properly. So I just worked as a art director, visual development artist, the character designer. So a little bit of different things. And, and slowly I started, um, you know, get, getting a sense of, of how the animation industry worked. I was very lucky to really early on, there was a project called Melita, which was a sort of one of the first Oculus, uh, narrative VR experiences that was produced out of a studio that it's no longer there called uh, Future Lighthouse mm-hmm. that did VR. And I worked as an art director for that project. And that was my first introduction into VR. Um, and, and I got, you know, like back in the day, there was a moment where there was a lot of press around VR. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, Google Spotlights was creating narrat- like VR short stories that were nominated to the Oscars and were winning, winning Emmys. And, and there was this sense of like, oh, wow, VR could be this whole new platform in which animation can exist and we can tell stories. And it's so brand new that I felt that the, free, like the, the, um, how do you say, like sort of like the, the, um, the friction to entry was going to be lesser because is, is lesser known. Um, there's less being done. So I thought, that maybe there I could, I could come up with an idea that would be easier to produce than a TV show or a movie for the traditional media. So I joined in with my, with the studio and no goes, well, I, am I going too fast? I'm just sort of jumping into a whole oh, no, new yeah. territory, but yeah, is it's this okay? absolutely awesome. Yes. Yes. It's super okay, fascinating okay, okay. to hear everything. Um, so as I, I moved into London and, and in London, there was this very, interesting young um you know industry and it, and it was vibrating and there was people from all over Europe living in London at the time and 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 I met a few young people that were around my age that were starting their own studios mm-hmm. um and then um one of them was no ghost which is the studio that eventually made Madrid Noir um, and as I was talking with them, they were already doing some, some small X, A, XR, AR, VR projects with clients, but they really wanted to create something that was their own, like a, something that they could, they could have a, like their own IP and something that they could feel sort of artistically invested on. Um, and I had, I had this very simple idea, right? I wanted to do a very simple 10 minute short film of a detective chasing a, a, um, a bad guy, like a, a, a thief that had stolen his little puppy. And that was it. It was a very simple sort of Pink Panther-esque. We wanted to make it, my pitch originally was, I want to make a Pink, a Pink Panther short film set in Madrid and do it in VR. And that was sort of the idea. And then we did a little test with that idea. And then that ended up, balloo, you know, sort of ballooning and growing into this one hour long movie with interaction and, and things. And things got much more complicated after that. But 
that was sort of the the very quick sum like summarization of or like what I did until I I I did my do noir. Um, yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing! Thank you so much, actually, for sharing many details into that because, as we know, stories is what connects. So when when you tell the story, it's super interesting to see where it all comes from. When we see the apps in the store, we just see the app, we just see the product. But it's yes. important as well to see what's the story behind. That's what connects, right? How yeah, much like, support has I think, been done. Yeah, I think it's, it's that also the idea that these things, and I talk about it a lot when I talk about Maginoir in, in different, you know, in festivals or whatever. It's the, the idea that these things don't come, the process of making it was something that it was so collaborative, was so complicated. There were so many things attached to it. I could not have ever imagined what it, what it was going to become at the end of the, of the process. And I think there is this illusion when you see games or apps in the store or projects that are being done and you just assume that, oh, somebody had a very clear idea what they wanted and they just executed it. And, and that's just not true. It, it's a very, emotional complex uh, story it's never really quite what you imagine it's going to be and then when you when you put it out into the world it's, it's sort of you hope that people are going to get mm -hmm. it and they're going to understand it mm -hmm. and you can only sort of wait patiently and for for the for the movie or the project to find its audience right but yeah. it's it's quite a tricky a tricky process I, i'm happy to go more into the details of of the actual production of it if you want mm -hmm. but i don't know if if you have yes. other questions before that. Yes, actually, that is, uh, we can jump now to speak about, particularly about Madrid Noir and uh, why Madrid Noir, why it got transformed from the detective to what it ended up being and uh, the production side, which is, yeah, yeah, you're the expert. Thank you. Um. um I like every story. I'm going to go a bit back to sort of the, the, the origin of the idea, right? Like, I think there is, there is a lot of people that talk about write what you know. Um, as you know, as you read about storytelling and filmmaking and, and writing, um, there is this constant idea of write what you know, write what you know, make it personal. And at the time, when I was making Madrid Noir, I, it was a time where I had already been living outside of, of Spain for a very long time. I left Spain when I was 20. Um, and other than about a year and a half where I lived in Barcelona, I've been living outside of Spain for the last 10 years. So there was a moment where I was going back to Madrid a lot for personal reasons. And I think this is something that a lot of immigrants go through, which is this rediscovery of the place that where you were born, right? I think there was, you know, when you grow up there, you you are always obsessed with the outside. You think that everything outside of your tiny city and your tiny country is much more interesting, appealing, grandiose, uh, exciting. Um, and then as you as you start going back, you kind of like you have this little window where you start falling in love with it again, and you understand it from the perspective of someone from the outside. And that, and I started becoming very interested in Madrid as a, as a city and, and it's, it's own history, um, sort of what happened through the years and how it evolved and, and all of that stuff. Um, so I knew that 
that there was something there that I thought that I wanted to explore and it was personal to me. Uh, and I thought that nobody else would, would do something like that. And then, like I said, we, I originally pitched a much more simple, probably like more rooted in, a, in, in a more sort of cartoon storytelling. This idea of just like a little cartoon of two characters chasing each other and gags and, and that's it. And then as we pitched the project and we developed the project, you know, the, the VFI, which is the British, um, uh, film fund, uh, came, uh, be, uh, you know, got involved and they fund a little bit of it. Uh, and then we eventually, uh, found partners on Atlas Five, which were the producers and distributors of the project. And all of a sudden there were a lot of people that were investing a lot of effort into making Madrid Noir into a successful project. And when we managed to get the funding for it, uh, Google Spotlights had already closed. Uh, and this format to make like 10 minutes of animation in VR wasn't quite worth it because there was very few ways of monetizing it and selling it. Um, and there was a new trend of making these like episodic stories where like, it was like three, five minute episodes. Um, there was examples like Gloomy Eyes or Battle Scar, which are all films done by Atlas Five, which were our producers. Um, but also we're setting the trend of like how you tell a story in VR. Uh, Baobab, of course, was doing, also doing mm-hmm. similar things. Um, and so we were asked to take our simple idea and make it into a one hour, well, like 50 minutes at the end, 50 minutes long experience, like a full on film. And that meant that we had to go back to the, to the writing table at this time. Lawrence, who was Lawrence Bennett, who's the writer of the, of the film with me. He's also one of the directors at No Ghost. And we sat down and we started crafting what we wanted to, to, t- like, what, what do we wanted to tell, right? Because doing an, a one hour story in VR, you needed, we, we needed a story that could really, people could really connect to. Um, and we, we, we wanted to write also a mystery. You know, it's, it's, it's fairly, Simple, but we also wanted to make sure that, that there was a certain element of intrigue and mystery mm-hmm. and finding out clues. And, and so we teamed up with, with, uh, another writer, Livia. Um, and we started developing not so much the character of the detective, Manolo, the, the main, the main guy, because we felt, well, he clearly, he's a very sort of solid one dimensional character. He's a grumpy old Spanish detective. He's not really the best, the best proxy for the audience, right? We needed a new character that could create conflict with him, but also feel like a better protagonist because, because it would have more things to, 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 you know, more of an arc to develop. And so we created the character of Lola, who's Manolo's niece, um, uh, from, uh, through whom we actually see the film, right? So, Half of the project, half of the story is told as a, as an anecdote, as a memory that she tells you something that she remembers. And then the other part of the story, you sort of, you see it unfolding in real time as you help her deal with all these different puzzles. So the main theme for us was this idea of, you know, we were all in our late twenties doing this and, and there was something that we kept talking about, about how important, like how important it was for us to recontextualize our childhood, right? I think 
you know, we, we had been living outside of our homes for a while. Uh, and we were kind of like starting to become adults in our own right and with our own merits. And, and we're starting to talk to our parents and understanding our parents in a, from a different perspective. And really, when we went back to think about our childhoods, we could actually understand them in a much more complex and three-dimensional way. So what if we could tell a story about someone who gets the opportunity to relive her childhood and by doing so, sort of recontextualize her opinions and her thoughts about what happened at that time. And that became sort of the hook for the film, right? Like, do you, can we make a, 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 a mystery that, that comes from this idea of, you know, someone has had, had a memory and they, they had a very strong idea of what went through, like what happened and, uh, and had a very strong opinion of it. And then as she discovers new information of, about what happened, she gets to recontextualize what went on. And by doing that, sort of grow as a person and find, uh, you know, closure for this trauma that went on when she was younger. Um, and that became sort of the, the meats and potatoes of the whole film. And then, you know, we started sprinkling a lot of like, you know, spy stuff and, and, and police, uh, genre things like noir genre things that, that, that's sort of where I, I really like genre as a, uh, as a, as a writer. I've realized that I really like this sort of playing in this, in this, um, uh, how do you call it? Uh, these little, I guess, like gardens, right? These little very delimited, very closed, um, um, places where, you know, so, like Westerns or sci-fi mm-hmm. or noir, they have very clear rules to follow. And I always feel very comfortable playing in that, in that, um, close quarters. Um, and, and then adding the element of Madrid to it and then adding the element of the time, the sort of the, the, the time split. So the, the film happens in the 1950s and in the 1930s at the same time. So all those things just became plot elements and sort of interesting visual ideas, but the core of it was more this idea of the emotional connection between someone and their own past. Um, and that sort of became the, um, the driving force through it. And then as we, so that was the writing process, right? That's we found the, the, the movie that we wanted to make. Um, everybody liked it. Thank God. And they thought it was a good idea. We wrote a script and everybody was like, okay, this is something that we can get behind that we can uh, invest on. Um, and then it came time to actually develop it, right? I'm making it. And, um, that's where Nogos really shined as a, as this sort of innovative, creative, um, place where they, they had a lot of experience creating stuff for clients, but they were also very young, uh, and very open to, to breaking the pipeline and breaking the mold. So it was a very, and like energetic collaboration where they, they were very happy to start breaking through the, the, how we could make this project in a, in a real engine, which is what we used to make it. And, and they were very happy to accept challenges, which was something very, as a director, something that I really value is, is collaborating with people that are happy to, to sort of not necessarily throw away everything they know, but sort of like, Use that as a starting board, but approaching projects from a perspective of can we make this in a way that, that, that is unique to this project, uh, and it fits the, the, the particular needs of this story. And they were really good for that. So one of the first things we did was, um, you know, in VR, 
it's very tricky to to know to to direct the the eye and the attention of the viewer to to follow the story because you have no editing like you cannot edit the movie you cannot control the camera you cannot do a lot of things uh, that we are so used to in in a more traditional media so as we were making the project we we found that within theater we could find a lot of um resources that i personally it was my opinion that they would translate better into VR than actual cinematic language because the cinematic language is so rooted on this idea of the frame and controlling the frame and comp- and the composition of the frame that a lot of the stuff that we w- we wanted to do we just couldn't do it we couldn't do a close up we couldn't do like a lot of things that we just couldn't execute in VR so we went to theater and we realized that a lot of the things that are true to theater, the relationship between the audience and the and the stage, the audience and the actors, the audience and the and the and the narrative and the lighting was also true to VR, where you are in the same space as the actors, you are in the same space as the set. So maybe there's something in their language that we can translate to VR, and um, and so that became one of those uh, graphic or, or artistic pillars of the project. And uh, as we were testing it, we re- realized that it really worked. If we had the right amount of distance and we used the spotlight and we used the lighting and the set to make sure that we knew where people had to look, we realized that people could actually follow the story pretty clearly and pretty nicely. And then so that became sort of a, a, a very defining feature of our story, which was the idea of like, okay, well then... Can we, what else can we take from theater to solve this problem? And we started using backwards projection, miniature sets. Um, you know, everything became very, um, very uh, artistically fun to do because it was something that I wasn't used to doing and they clearly weren't. But we, 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 we were lucky enough that one of the members of the team uh, had been a child actor growing up so he had a lot of um sort of information about theater and how to how to um you know make it fun and it just became a really fun process right like um it meant that we could change from scene to scene without actually having to cut we just needed to have the characters come out of one end of the stage and then appear the other end of the stage or having the sets collapse and reappear and it meant that we could keep the story flowing without having to make these very harsh cuts in between in between that sometimes force the audience to reassess where they are and they always lose a couple seconds just trying to find sort of to see the environment and, and understand where they are um and it allowed us to actually be quite you know um instead like a lot of these things were necessarily thought through right at the beginning. A lot of it was a, a game of discovery. And we were discovering what worked for us, both in terms of our story and also our capability. Um, and we created this weird hybrid between VR and film and theater that I think was pretty successful um, in telling the story. But it was always, a story was always the number one thing that we care about. It was... Can we make sure that emotionally all of these decisions are making sense, right? Like then 
the other element that we haven't I haven't talked about yet was interaction and having interaction, making sure the interaction didn't just feel gimmicky and didn't just feel like something that was a bit pastiche and not quite embedded into the narrative was also a very challenging thing. We actually kept it fairly simple in terms of the amount of things that you can do, but we really wanted to make sure that everything that we asked the player to do um, had some sort of a form of impact into the story or that it at least gave them more context for the story, right? Like, for example, at the beginning of the, of the, of the, of the film, you are asked to look through all these different cupboards and, and cabinets to look for different clues. And there are a couple of clues that are necessary for the story, but there are other clues that are just flavor, right? Like this, for example, a coaster that has the logo of a bar and a date on it, on the back. You don't have to pay attention if you don't want to, but for those who do pay attention, a few minutes later into the film, you are actually going to go into that location and you're going to see this, the, the bar from which this coaster came from. And the date that is written on it is going to give you the date that, that, that the scene that you're seeing happened in. And it may it made also sense because it, it sort of made the past real because you had proof on the present that what, what you are seeing actually happened. So it, there's all these, all these different elements that, you know, um, that might look sort of superficial the first time, but everything was sort of very thought through because we really cared about making sure that the story and the emotional um, punch really worked um, and that you could get yourself immersed into it. Um, yeah, so I think I I feel like I've I've been just talking nonstop. Um, no, yeah, this is amazing, <laughs> especially those details that you just mentioned are so professional, so carefully crafted. You know, so it's super exciting to hear that, like how really that is done. Because sometimes we see in movies. And we kind of catch sometimes some of those little details. We kind of, oh, we saw that in a scene before that was connected. So how cool how they connected that. But now you're explaining more into how that really actually works. And so in terms of storytelling, we'd like to know how to craft a good story. A story that is emotional because it's not just about, right, like the whole production, you know, how mm. the direction is going to be, how the marketing is going to be, how the stage, how the costumes, how all, all of these things that play into a, into a good uh, work of art, um, a film, but the story, you know, how, how do people can craft good stories? Well, uh, it's something story. that I'm still trying to fully grasp. I think it's something that is, is a very, it's a, it's a very hard thing to do. I think every project that, that you tackle, you end up having to relearn how to write and rethink about, you know, sort of restructure your ideas about writing. I think the few things that I find true is that it is way more, is way, is way more important than you think always, uh, when you start up a, a, a production to have a very clear idea of, of, of a script. And what you want to do, I think for those of us that come from a technical background or, or an artistic background, we can be very impatient because we just want to start drawing and designing and doing things and testing it. But if you don't have a solid 
a story that is going to be able to hold all the world building, all the design. It's going to end up not finding its footing and it's going to start to sort of tilt one way or the other, right? And you want to make sure that you have a stable um, film, a stable production. So for me, I think it's always the central question of having a character. I think especially early on, we can get very, this happens to everybody. So I hope nobody takes this personally. We tend to sometimes be very in love with our own world, like ideas and world buildings. And like, wouldn't it be interesting to, to make a movie that breaks all these rules and it's an intellectual exercise that, you know, uh, and I think the one thing that I've learned is that people actually are way more forgiving of plot, right? So the, the actual plot of the, of the film than they are of emotional truths. As long as you have an emotional truth running through the film, an emotional core that, that people can engage with and they can understand constantly where the character, like what the emotional stakes of the story are, the plot is less important. The plot can be adjusted, can be moved around. We, you can make alterations to it. People are going to be very forgiving of it. But if you don't have that emotional, you know, threat, it's harder for people to actually be invested on, on the film. Uh, and that's something that it took me a while to understand because, you know, I, we had crafted this very complicated plot with all these different characters and all these different things that were going to happen. And it was like, we were so in love with the idea of like, look, 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 like, look at the complexity, look at all this stuff. And then we realized that when people were watching our first sort of animatics and, and stuff, they just didn't care about that because they were constantly asking us, but like, but why, why would Lola do something like that? Or why, I don't understand what would motivate someone to do this or this or that. So we realized that constantly asking ourselves, would the audience understand the emotional truth behind this action? Yes or no. If they don't, why don't I, do we actually know why would someone do something like that? And, and, and so that ends up really opening up the, the, the scope of, of who these characters are, because I think it's very important to start seeing the characters of your film as, as three dimensional, truly developed, people instead of just pawns that you can move around to fulfill your plot because then that just becomes a very intellectual exercise and it's not emotional and stories as cliche as this sounds they are appealing because they 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 reach in an emotional level right they, they, are, they are compelling in an emotional level not in a logical level um and i think that as long as, 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 as you are writing and you keep that in mind, um, you will be in a good place. Um, and that it's, it's, it's probably, it's really hard because you have to constantly fight, um, your own instincts sometimes. Um, but that has always proven to be, to be true in the, in, in the short amount of experience that I have. I'm sure that, you know, all the people with our experience will have other, um, takes, but that's at least in my opinion. And then, because if you have a very clear emotional core to the film, every other decision, artistic decision, technical decision, um, you know, uh, interact, like interactive decision ends up, you always have a way to answer 
their why, right? Because that's always going to be like, why are you doing anything? Why, why are you choosing to put a spotlight instead of a normal light? Why are you choosing to make this scene interactive instead of non-interactive? What, like, and if you don't have an answer to that, you, you can end up having a bit of a wishy-washy experience. If you have a very strong core, you can always say, I'm, I'm forcing the audience to do this because I want them to empathize with what the character is going through at this moment. Or I want to make sure, I want to have the light be blue at this moment because I want to make sure that the emotional, like, truth of the scene comes across as clearly as possible. I want to make sure that the music is like this because I want to make sure that people can understand what this character is thinking. Um, so it's all these things that it always ends up going down to that emotional truth. Um, so look for that. It, it can take time. Be patient. Um, also find a place where you feel vo- a little bit vulnerable. Um, and that would really allow you to reach to that point. Um, I think there's a tendency sometimes to like want to keep your, your emotional cards very close to your chest, but there is a strength in showing those cards to your team and, and explain to them what is some, what is, what is the emotions that, what are the emotions that you want to explore and make them part of it? Like, don't keep it to yourself and just sort of allow them to embrace that because if they can empathize with what you want to do, they'll make sure to deliver to that, to that standard, right? But if you keep it always close to you, they, they just, they'll, like, they just will not know why you're making the, the, the choices that you're making. So that would be the thing, like, be vulnerable, find the emotional truth, uh, and then surround yourself with creative and smart people that can help you make sure that what you're trying to tell is straight to the point. Because mm-hmm. um, very easily you can end up getting distracted with a lot of things. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. As you mentioned, this particular topic of um, storytelling is so huge and is, it becomes very particular about the actual story i guess that you that you're writing but uh, those are great great points the emotional connection um i had been working in a project where it's about a little girl that gets um is diagnosed with cancer and it's a, a story about self-discovery so uh when i showcased this in a demo at the school i could see how people was really connected with the story and invested in that, you know, it kind of touched. And the person that was giving me feedback actually was touched by that because someone in his family also got this type, this type of case. Someone, someone got cancer. So these are the type of things that really connect deeply. And rather than, you know, the product, the story just becomes so personal to you, right? It's just mm-hmm. like, it's just like it's part of me right away. So thank you right so away. much for No, I think just to add on that. Yeah. Absolutely true. Uh I also have a case of of cancer in my family so I really sort of empathize with the with the want to talk about it because sometimes it's something that is very hard to express that frustration with that type of disease. But just to sort of try to wrap a little bow around it to separate two things, right? One is the world building. You can have the most complex insane world, right? Sci-fi, fantasy, world where whatever, you know, you could have flying, I don't know, ships and um, 
you know, uh, magical futures and dragons and, and, or a time travel, whatever you want. Doesn't matter. You need to have that human connection, right? You need to mm-hmm. always sh- tell me a story that has a human scale. Mm-hmm. That's always the case. And I think the most successful films always start in that very small, emp- like empathetic little pocket where you can understand what this character is going through because emotions are universal. Everybody goes through this. Everybody has, a, a, you know, siblings, parents, everybody falls in love. Everybody's afraid of something. Everybody, you know, has to rediscover their, like, reanalyze their own childhood. Everybody has to face their own demons. These are things that happen in every culture in the world and by every single human in this planet. So as long as you, you can keep it at a human scale, the, 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 uh, the stakes of the story, you can build the most bananas crazy world around it. That doesn't matter. That, that is more superficial. It is all about that little small, um, pocket of empathy. Um, if you can reach there, you can do whatever you want. That's amazing. Clearly speaks directly to me, as I mentioned. We're still creating this story, but uh, we, I discovered that just by experience because I'm not a filmmaker or I don't have that background. But yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much. So um, yeah, it's been an incredible conversation. I really don't want to finish it, but I know <laughs> that you're super busy. You're working in amazing projects. Please let us know how people can get a hold of maybe you or to support you in fundraising, maybe like when you, when you create other projects, like investors, whatever, or like to also find uh, Madrid Noir. Well, um, it's been very nice. I, I, I could talk about uh, storytelling for a very long time. I'm always curious, especially to hear what all the people are making, because like I said before, I think, there is, we were very aware that we were building a project on the shoulders of what came before us, right? The Google Spotlights, the Baobabs, all these projects that were very narrative heavy. And I'm very interested to see what gets done, you know, after Madrid Noir. I'm very interested to see what happens after that. So, um, but anyway, sorry to answer your question. Um, you can find me online. I think my handle is Murphish, M-U-R- F, no, sorry. M-U-R-F-I-S-H. Um, everywhere on Twitter, Instagram, whatever. I have a website, uh, murphysart.com. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really doing fundraising at the moment or any Kickstarters or anything like that, but I am developing all the projects and, uh, I'm going to go to a few events, uh, in, uh, I'm going to Pixelato in a little bit in Mexico, uh, which is a big animation festival. Um, I'm going to a couple of other festivals in Spain. I, I am, a, I'm not, I tend to always be in, in, at CTN or, um, Lightbox in LA or Annecy in, in, in France. It's another big animation festival. So if anybody, um, is going there, I'm normally a regular in those places. But, um, yeah. Thank you so much for this. This has been great. This has been amazing. I am absolutely excited. Thank you so much, James. It's been absolutely um, amazing to get to, to have the opportunity to speak with you and for you to share all of this um, experience Thanks. and your kindness. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you. And see you in the next episode. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.